Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Introducing the first ever Grand Highlander, a mid-sized SUV with the ideal combination of space, performance, style, and advanced tech. The roomy Grand Highlander boasts three spacious rows with available seating for up to eight. It's available 362 horsepower. Hybrid Max powertrain unlimited and platinum trims delivers the power, acceleration, and efficiency so your family can take on any adventure. There's even a standard digital key, a panoramic view mirror, and a 12.3-inch multimedia touchscreen so you always arrive on time. Live life grander in the first-ever Toyota Grand Highlander. Learn more at toyota.com slash Grand Highlander. Hi, it's Gabby Reese, and this podcast is powered by Laird Superfood. It was created in our kitchen by my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, and it all started with a simple idea. What began as Laird's secret for long-lasting energy on the waves is now Laird Superfood, offering a full range of delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and more. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 and save 20% on your first order. When the time comes to plan your next big getaway, know we got a destination idea for you. Orlando. Just think about it. The thrills at their 15 world-class theme parks, followed by awesome outdoor adventures, amazing food festivals, and top-notch dining spots. Orlando has all that and much more than you'd expect. In Orlando, anything is possible if you can imagine it. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. That's visitorlando.com for everything you need for an amazing getaway. And now, Move the Sticks with Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Move the Sticks presented by Zaxby's DJ Bucky back with you. And uh, Buck, we've had some great guests on this show, but I I might be more excited about today's guests than anybody else we've ever had. Yeah, really exciting. I mean, like, this is funny, right? Because you end up dating yourself. It's almost like a a childhood dream to have a conversation with the guy that you looked up to uh, when you watch games on TV. And so... Having Hall of Famer Joe Montana, four-time Super Bowl champion, three-time Super Bowl MVP on the program is a little surreal. And so it's going to be fantastic to have a conversation with him about everything um, related to winning and creating high standards. Yeah, you're going to look forward to that conversation. It was a lot of fun. Uh, Also going to uh, air a little snippet of a conversation we had with Dave Roberts, who's now World Series uh, champion as a player, obviously. Now a World Series champion as a manager. The Dodgers won Uh, the World Series over the Tampa Rays. We got a chance to visit with him before the season kicked off. And some portions of that interview, I think, were really relevant after seeing how the Dodgers went on uh, to win the World Series. So we're going to air a little snippet of that interview. Uh, But before we get to those, Buck, when we uh, uh, we look at what's going on around the NFL, we've talked about potentially seeing a busy trade season. We're starting to see a couple of these things trickle out now. Yeah, we are starting to see a couple of these things trickle out. And I think this 
week, like before the weekend, this would be a, a big time because the COVID protocols make it where guys have to sit out for a while. So if you want to get an immediate return on your investment when it comes to the trade, it kind of has to happen Thursday or Friday um, to be able to get these guys ready to play the following week. And so, look, I mean, it's, it's, it's a unique set of circumstances. I do believe that we have a younger generation of general managers who are more willing to trade now than ever. And so I think we'll see a lot of movement at the deadline, unlike previous years where everyone would just kind of hold firm. I think this year we could see a handful of guys move. Yep. Uh, you know, again, it gets a little bit complicated um, with the onboarding process and how that can take a little bit of time. So uh, we'll wait and see what happens there. I, I wanted to get your thought on one other topic here. Let me see if I can find it. I've got it written down somewhere. So when we look at what the New England Patriots are doing along the offensive line right now, Buck, I found it fascinating. This is a team that's got, oh, here it is. I found it. So here's here's the New England Patriots offensive line left to right right now. You ready? This is the height, height for these guys. Uh, keep in mind that it's an eighth of an inch is how you do it in scouting. So left tackle, 6026, so under 63. Left guard, 6045, that's good size. Center, 6031, just over 63. Right guard, 6015. Right tackle, 6035. So they only have one offensive lineman over 64. Uh, uh, that's starting for them right now. So you think about the NFL, which has has long been about length and size uh, along the offensive line being highly coveted, and maybe you can try and hide one or two guys that are quote-unquote deficient. Um, This whole offensive line almost across the board is undersized. And it's fascinating to me where you're always trying to find value. And maybe Bill Belichick's saying, hey, maybe there are some really good players out there along the offensive line, a position that's been depleted at the college level, maybe we've been penalizing some of these shorter guys too much. Yeah, you know, at a time when everyone is zigging, the Patriots are always zagging. They always are trying to be uh, one step ahead of the curve. I do wonder um, when you have some of those undersized linemen, I do wonder if you run into challenges, right? Because the guys that we are seeing playing up front, especially the dominant ones, they typically are superheroes at the line. Like when you think about some of these guys that are able to dominate off the edges, they have size, they have length, they have athleticism, they have the ability to wiggle. And if you are an undersized offensive lineman and you don't have the necessary length to keep those pass rushers inside or outside at bay, it can make for a long day for your quarterback. And so I understand uh, maybe trying to find value with a different approach to the position, but I do wonder if that's a sustainable and even an effective model that you can use. Yeah. I mean, I think they're playing okay. I mean, they, they haven't done, been bad up front. I mean, their, their issues have been elsewhere mm-hmm. uh, with the quarterback and not being able to get any separation down the field. But um, I just, I, I found it a little bit interesting. We think about forever, right? We penalize short quarterbacks. Yeah. Oh, you can't do it. And all of a sudden now you'll, okay. All of a sudden, wait a second, Russell Wilson's pretty good. You know, Baker Mayfield first pick in the draft, Kyler Murray's playing really well. We're seeing kind of like that new era. And I think, why haven't we thought about that with some of these other positions? Yeah, I wonder. It, it would be interesting over time, right? Because, DJs, we know, like, in the industry, when it comes to the numbers and the metrics and measurables, a lot of those things have been done over 10, 15, 20-year studies in terms yeah. of we always do it, and it's influenced and impacted our grading. What plays in the league? And moreover, what plays successfully in the league over time? A lot of what we're trying to do is we're trying to narrow the odds to give ourselves the best opportunity to make the right pick or to build the right team. And Ron Wolf said this, and and it's funny, he he talks about um, when you make an exception to the rule, you end up having a team full of exceptions. And the great teams have standards 
and they don't really bend on those standards. And they may miss out on a player because like that player didn't hit a, a prototypical thing, but more time, like more times than not, they hit it right because they've set the standard. They know exactly what fits for them and what works with their scheme and all the things that they're trying to do. And it goes, and you have to be okay when you're sticking tight to that model that there are going to be some guys that slip through the cracks, but you feel like you're giving your team the best chance to win by creating an established, by creating a standard and sticking to that standard. Well, what's so interesting to me is that a lot of that standard and discussion was with Bill Parcells. Bill Parcells, did, he, he would all echo the same thing. of Ron Wolf, you don't make exceptions. You just don't do it. He will not take a short corner. Um, mm-hmm. He's not going to take undersized players. He just had these metrics you had to hit. And then Bill Belichick had adopted that for the most part. You look at New England, they would not draft short corners. Um, they, they, they were very particular about that. Edge setters had to look like Willie McGinnis, mm-hmm. which yeah. are hard to find. Didn't want, he didn't want any six-foot-two edge, edge players. And now I think – as he's getting a little bit older here, I think you're seeing Bill Belichick saying maybe that's not always the the right approach and making more exceptions than he did, you know, earlier in his career with the Parcells influence. Yeah, and, and that that could definitely be something we can go back and look at the drafts and see they have kind of relented on some of those things. You talked about the edge rusher looking like Willie McGinnis, where we saw them take Josh Uche and Winnipeg yeah, and some of those guys saying. that don't necessarily fit that mode. Now, the thing about that is when you do do that and you kind of deviate outside of your norm, do you have the eye to be able to identify the exceptions that succeed? Yeah. Like that, that that's the thing because, um, and I think this is a, a Ravens thing, um, maybe in being around Ozzy and that, that crew, they've told me you can't go wrong, wrong getting good football players. So if a yeah. guy's a good football player in high school and he's a good that football player in college, he's, yeah. he's going to get it. So don't get caught up in that. Tell me how they play. And if they play well, and they play well all the time, they dominate high school, college, or whatever, more likely than not, they're going to dominate in the pros. And so there are two different ways to look at it. It is interesting, though. Yep. No, it's an interesting uh, discussion there. All right, let's get to this interview here. Excited about this one. Um, he is uh, has, has been considered the GOAT for a very long time. Tom Brady has made that conversation maybe a little bit muddy uh, over the last couple of years, but there is uh, – uh, there's no better person to talk to about culture, about playing the quarterback position uh, than this man right here. Here's our conversation with Joe Montana. All right, Buck, excited to be joined by our next guest here. Joe Montana is joining us. I could list off all the accolades, but we wouldn't have time to do the interview. Uh, they're well known. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for, for taking some time with us. When, when you're with two former scouts, I, you know, get a chance to talk with you. There's a question that, that's been hanging out there that we have to ask. Mark Gorsak, was he really your high school center? And because uh, he's been telling us this for years. And B, was he any good? I mean, that's that's what we really want to know. Absolutely, <laughs> he was, and, and he was pretty good. <laughs> All linemen are good, don't you know that? Oh yeah, that's the rule. That's the quarterback rule. That's the quarterback rule. There, uh, hey Joe, we've seen so many rookie quarterbacks. Uh, have success early on in their careers. We're seeing it now this year. We, I see it doing the charge games with Justin Herbert. Uh, we're going to see two of this week. What What do you remember about your first experience uh, getting out there as a young player? Well, let's see. My first experience in, was against Seattle. Um, and I think I threw two interceptions that were run back for touchdowns. <laughs> the nerve of this guy that on the second one to run me over on the one yard line to get into the end zone. <laughs> not, not good memories. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, these guys, the game's a little different though. You're getting, 
you know, receivers off the ball, getting releases, you know, not not knowing that you're not going to take those big hits, a little different. Um, But, you know, obviously I think the guys who have success are really the guys in college who probably were taught how to play the game from the pocket, even though their running ability is still there and escape ability when they need it, they, they still can run the ball if they, and they still can run, you know, everybody wants to run a little bit of that read option and those guys can still do that. But, you know, I, I think one of the disservices that a lot of these coaches do in college to these quarterbacks is that they don't really teach them how to look down the field and understand what's happening. There's any time you see the guy up, it's, he's behind the center. Then all of a sudden they all go like this. And they turn to the coach and, they have, and they're telling them with those signs what the coverage is, where the, they should pull the ball. I mean, all these things are being told to them instead of them having an understanding of the game. My guess is those guys who are playing at those levels right now uh, as young guys have, have done it in college. And, and, and whether they were taught it or somehow they were taught to play the game from the pocket first and not, you know, from – you know, you look at a lot of them when you see a lot of those guys, guys throwing the receivers in, in in college, you're seeing guys running wide open. And when a lot of that started happening originally in the NFL, you were seeing the same type of things, right? They're first time they're all seeing this. And then it, then you just can't fool those defensive coordinators for too long. They figure out how to get to it. And like for me, I always said, if I was, if I was on the defensive side, I'd make the quarterback run it every time. Back in the Every more time, <laughs> get another hit wherever you can. But make he's not made to run the ball, right? I mean, that's not what he. I mean, he can do it, but he doesn't train like a running back. He's not used to taking those hits. And the more you get on him, it's like Bill Walsh used to talk about, like the boxer, right? One guy is getting the punch by this much, and by the end of the fight, that little bit of an extra hit. By the time you get to the end, end of that uh, boxing match that guy's worn out. And the same thing with the quarterback. Now you get a guy that's running the ball down all the time. You're hitting him. You're hitting him in the pocket. It's a little more wear and tear. And it comes down to the end of the game. Now you got to make an accurate throw, right, to win the game. You can go back and look at what happened with the 49ers. When, when they couldn't get the – you know, they threw it three times down there from the one or two-yard line when they were in the Super Bowl. And this, mm-hmm. you know, they had to run the ball so many times. By the end of the game, sometimes it gets tough down there. So you get enough hits in the pocket. But that's that's just my long philosophy. <laughs> Joe, you're regarded as the best of all time, the greatest of all time. A lot of it is due to your ability to win and be a four-time Super Bowl champion. Uh, some of that is tied directly to the 49ers and the culture that you guys created. As the gatekeeper of the culture, as the quarterback, um, what are some of the, the standards that, that you learned or that you impress upon others to get the team to consistently play at a high level? Well, I think Bill, one of the things that Bill, he had us strive for was perfection all the time. He wanted you to be perfect and no one more so than the quarterback. Um, he, I mean, if you go back and you, if you watch old footage of whether it was myself, Steve DeBerg, myself, Steve Young, Steve Bono, there's a lot of Steve's in there, and then <laughs> um, uh, you, you don't see a lot of guys diving for balls, or, or yeah, on occasion, very rare. Was he demanded crossing routes, twelve inches in front of the numbers? If you're run, if your guy's running a hook, and, and he or you know something where he's coming back and looking at you, you can see where the defender is. I want you to throw the ball to the opposite number 
to tell him to turn that direction. So he doesn't turn and get hit in the face. And just the little things that made a difference to Bill. Um, and you, we, we, we did that on both sides of the ball. I mean, he, he demanded that part of it. And, and in return, the things that he did for the team that, that really kind of helped was that we were the first team to take pads off. I mean, we, there for a while, we didn't, we rarely ever put on full pads, even in training camp, maybe one time for a scrimmage here and there. Most of the time we'd have just shoulder pads and, and then the second practice we'd be in just shorts and helmets. And, and he, his philosophy was, look, as long as I see you're mentally preparing yourself and you're doing the things you're supposed to do, we'll keep it this way. Cause I want you healthy on Sunday, not on Wednesday. And so you know, he would, he goes, and if I don't see it, well, we'll go put the pads back on. I'm happy for that. And he would do that on occasion just to get us and make sure that we knew that he would do it. And, and But um, in the long run, it, it was, you know, his philosophy was, you know, why do you want to be mediocre? You know, if you strive to be mediocre and you miss, <laughs> you're not going to be on this team very often, very long. <laughs> and so his thing was that perfection, and if you miss being perfect, you still can be pretty good. Joe, I, I did a, a project when I was with the Ravens. We went back and, and we looked at all the Hall of Fame quarterbacks and we're trying to find, you know, what, what's the common trait that they possess. And all obviously, you know, all different sizes, arm strengths, athletic ability. But the word that I came up with just looking at all of them was just poise. Um, and when we think of you, that's the first word that comes to mind was just your poise. It, wh- wh- how would you describe that? Um, what that is? What what poise is? Um, I think it's it's concentration and it's preparation. Um, you know, one of the things that Bill also strived was, you know, coming to, coming to work prepared every day, not Sunday. Right. Mm -hmm. He wants to see it every day. And, and, you know, for us, and we back early on, we never had the little earpieces. So we would, we had a lot of plays in our offense and we'd have 120 some passes in every game plan, 35 plus runs. Every one of those had two, three formations, and you had to memorize them all. And you had to memorize which order he wanted them in, and because we would get signaled just to play, and yeah. so you had to know. And so it took a lot of preparation every day, all the way, you know, even even all the way to Friday night was a big, crazy preparation day for me. And, you know, it was so funny. We, we went, we lost in the championship game to the Redskins and we went to the Pro Bowl and Joe Theismann was there. And first day, Bill's coaching the team because that's how that all worked back then. And now, and he puts in 35 passes in day one. And <laughs> Joe goes to me, he goes, I go, he goes to me, wow, he, I can't believe he put in all the pass plays in one day. I go, are you crazy? He's like, he can install till Saturday. He goes, there's nothing. He goes, I'm not, I go, I'm not even studying. I go, there's nothing that comes day one. Day one's usually like 80 or 90. Sure enough, he installed. He goes, man, I don't know how you do all that. He goes, how do you? I go, just get used to it after a while. <laughs> hey, Joe, um, I followed you in Kansas City. And I want to ask you, because we're seeing so many quarterbacks go from one environment, namely Tom Brady's going from one environment where he's been there for 20 years and then he's going to Tampa. And I want to pick your brain on how you took everything that you learned from San Francisco in terms of the winning way, the championship standard, and you go into a new locker room. How do you impress upon 
the new guys who may not have sampled winning to your level, hey, this is what we need to do to reach the dreams that everyone in this room has? Well, I, I think the way the best way to do it is just go in and, and you have to prove. I, I think when you first go in there, guys are going, oh, yeah, here he comes. He probably thinks he's this, he's all this and he's all that. But it shows up at practice the first time you get there and what your practice and your work ethics like. Uh, and I'm sure Tom probably, you know, as great as Tom's been and, and is, he probably had to, went through the same kind of feeling in that locker room initially until you watch him practice. And I'm, and, and, and that's was Bill's other thing was you come, we practice every day, like it's a game and you bring everything and I don't want the ball to hit the ground. And, you know, and that's, I mean, that's just was it. He wanted you to make the right decisions. Yeah. You're, you're going to all make mistakes, but it's how you bounce back from the mistake. It's the teaching of the, like when we went to Kansas city, it's, you know, I was, I was fortunate because Paul Hackett was there who had been with us at the 49ers and through our, our second Super Bowl, And so there was a blend of our offense of what we done had done in San Francisco with a blend of Marty Schottenheimer's offense. And, but it's the little things on like helping the wide receivers understand simple little things that it's going to happen. And until they see it happen, they don't believe it. And like, we will call a play and, and it's not, which the backside of a route we're working on on another side. And it was a play called 20 halfback read. And then the back comes out of the backfield. And he's going, we're working on this side of the field and the X receiver and the, and the, and the back and the tight end. And, and, and the backside receiver has a post hook read. And I said, and I would say, okay, I'm just telling you right now, because when Jerry Rice got there, everything became post hook read for Jerry. <laughs> and that's, if he moves out of the middle, I don't care if this guy's wide open. I'm throwing the ball to you. It's coming. And we, for our first game, I don't think the guy realized we're playing in Tampa that it happened. And I let it go. And I think caught him by surprise and he dropped it in the end zone for a touchdown. And um, those are the little things I think you, you work on the most. And, and that makes your offense get just a little bit better with how long it takes you to get those receivers on the same page. And I think that's what Tom I'm sure it has gone through the first part of the season. You can see it was a little different than where he's at right now. And, and then you bring in the knucklehead Gronk to those group of receivers that he's got down there. <laughs> and, and even as great as those receivers are to him, it's still what Tom sees, what he expects, and what will help them understand that they're going to get the ball. If you do this, you're going to get the ball against this certain coverage or this kind of play by the by the uh, defensive back. This is what I'm, I, I, I expect you to do because you, you know what, we, we've, we, our guys had so many adjustments that you could almost not cover. I mean, we could be running a shallow cross and, you know, it could turn into a deep cross, it could turn into a stop, it could turn into a stop and a slide. I mean, you could, you could do almost anything. There were so many adjustments off of every route that it was really hard to cover, especially when you got guys like that came in when, with Jerry and John Taylor John Taylor was free. I, I feel bad for him playing on the other side of Jerry because he, he could have been Jerry, right? Those are the things I think that the biggest part of the transition is getting everybody getting on the same page, uh, especially throwing the ball. We've been very generous with your time today, Joe. How about tell us about this partnership you've got here uh, with Notre Dame and with Guinness? Yeah, I mean, things has been a long time coming. When you look at the – there's a lot they have in common with the values that they share – 
um, the history that they have behind them, um, the things that they're doing in the days, these days, you know, to try to make the world a better place. Um, and the partnership with the NFL, I mean, with uh, Notre Dame alumni um, and, and Guinness is, you know, a seven year uh, process coming out. And I kind of fit in the middle there because I, I actually fell in love with Guinness while I was in Dublin. Uh, we were actually over there with our, some horse trainers looking for horses, jumping horses. Our girls were jumping and we're looking to get away from the big expensive market over here. One of the trainers took me to get a pint after uh, Guinness. And first off, I said, Charlie, what, where, where's the beer? You didn't come back with it. He goes, oh, no, you got to wait. You had to wait for it because it takes some time to pour perfectly. And um, after from that point on, you know, I always you always look at it and you see it. It looks really dark and heavy, and it's it's really it's like light and creamy. And, and I'm totally taken off, taken back by it. And uh, from that point on, every day we were there, Charlie. I think it's time for a pint. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of in the mix there, and you know, we got commercials coming out and. First one's going to hit here on the Notre Dame uh, Clemson game called Wait for It. And it's about the anticipation of the beer and the anticipation of some great plays that have happened uh, uh, there at Notre Dame. And so uh, it's fun. It's been a, been a it's been a fun thing to be uh, associated with and two two great places. You'll be able to see that commercial November 7th, Clemson, Notre Dame. Going to be one of the biggest games of college football season. Joe, it's, it's been an honor and a pleasure to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having us. Well, Buck, I thought that was, uh, man, what a fun conversation. Every now and then, kind of that little kid inside of you uh, gets excited. I mean, you get kind of numb when you're in the jobs we're in. We're very blessed, very fortunate. You get to talk to a lot of cool people. But uh, it's always a little different when you talk to somebody like Joe Montana. I mean, it's very different. And I never had the opportunity, obviously, to play with him. But I stepped into a lot of places that were very influenced by people who were connected to him. So playing in Green Bay, Mike Holmgren was the quarterback coach and offense coordinator for the San Francisco 49ers. He comes over to Green Bay, takes a lot of the things that he learned, not only from the 49ers, but in his interactions with Joe Montana. And he impresses them upon Brett Favre and the other quarterbacks and also isn't establishing the culture. And one thing that, that stood out to me that Joe talked about, he talked about the ball not hitting the ground. Um, and I just remember being in practice in Green Bay and that was the expectation that um, you completed every pass on air, seven on seven, in team, the ball shouldn't hit the ground. And that was the standard. And you just kind of went about your business knowing that that is what it, to the point where if the ball did hit the ground, it seemed like everyone would look around like, hey, what's going on? <laughs> like, what's, what's that about? And so those high standards that Joe was talking about, it now makes sense to me like why Coach Holmgren was such a stickler for detail because he was a stickler for detail. And I think a lot of that was influenced and impacted by his time with the 49ers with Bill Walsh, but also watching Joe Montana work each and every day. Yeah, it was it was really interesting um, in that conversation. We talked about poise because I've always used that word. I want to see how he defined it. I've never heard a better, more clear definition of poise than what he gave which was the combination of your preparation and your concentration. So your preparation to get you ready for the moment, your concentration to be able to stay in the moment. Um, mm -hmm. What a great image of that. And it's like, man, you know what? There's a reason why, you know, you got a nickname, Joe Cool, and you're so calm. It's not because you're, you're not you're not calm in the face of pressure because you have something different inside you than everybody else. 
you're calm inside the face of pressure because your preparation has been different than everybody else. And I mean, I think that was a great image. You know, DJ, it was funny because he, he, he talked about preparation on multiple occasions. I'm, I'm looking at the notes from the conversation. He, he talked about preparation and preparation and practice and how they went about it and how the, the mental part of it, high expectations, high standards, the details on both sides of the ball. And a lot of what they talked about doing was bringing game-like um, energy and focus and attention to practice so they would carry that over into games. And I think the common denominator between the people and the teams that we see are very successful, uh, practice and preparation is everything. It matters a lot how you get ready for games, how you get ready for doing whatever it is that you're about to take on. It matters. And if you put in the time um, to prepare and to prepare properly, the results end up taking care of themselves. How about the difference between the way the position was played when he talked about volume versus now? And we've seen these rookies get right on the field, right? Get right on the field and have success. A lot of them have success. There is no way on God's green earth that if right before the game started, you go to Justin Herbert and say you're in and you have to have the responsibility that Joe Montana talked about that he used to have back then with the amount of volume you had to have in your head. Not only that, it's it's as you you've played in the system, you know, the side adjusts you have to make as a receiver and as a quarterback to be able to see all those side adjusts. That's not the way the game's played anymore. I mean, in some ways, you'd think like as things grow, they build and get more complicated. And I think in the NFL, and maybe it's a good thing, it's actually gone the other way. It's gotten simpler. Yeah, it's gotten simpler because like I, I think what happened when it came to the simplification, you had a lot of people that came out from up under their West Coast offense tree. Um, they were extensions of Walsh and I would say Shanahan had a different version of it, but Holmgren and all the different disciples. And what happens, DJ, is everyone – adds to it right so it's that game that we played in elementary where we yes. passed the secret or, and, <laughs> and then you pass it on then everyone adds something telephone i think it was telephone yeah, right? tel- so 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 now what should be red right 22 scat hank becomes red right 22 scat hank x ben z banger or whatever yeah. and then the next person who runs that adds something so they try and tell everybody so then it became so verbose that you can't remember that by the time, you know, we all have short attention. By the time the quarterback starts saying the play to the time he ends, you're like, wait, what? Oh, I, forgot. I, yeah. I, I forgot where, where am I at? What am I doing? Yeah. And so I think some of it, they had to cut it down so guys could play fast because you did have a bunch of young players, particularly wide receivers, kind of in a fog trying to remember where do I line up? What do I have? What are the adjustments? And so it takes a lot, but yeah, it you, we are seeing a very, simplified version of football and it's designed to help the quarterback play well but also to help all these perimeter players on the outside understand what to do and play fast as well i'm curious because you you played during a time before the before the earpiece came in the helmet right buck yeah so so did you guys signal or did you guys shuttle shuttle players in with plays or did you guys signal everything on the sideline do you remember gosh i'm trying to think I, i guess they had to they had to signal it in now that i'm thinking about it because those wide receivers didn't run in and out. They weren't running to play in and out, not at the pro level. Like, that's more college and high school. Yeah. Oh, we, yeah, I did, I did a little bit yeah. of that in college. I, there's nothing worse than being in a huddle and the receiver comes in and he goes, far right. Uh, gosh, what was it? Far right. I'm like, oh, <laughs> the thing good, man. That ain't good. A lot of confidence there. Yeah. Um, no, I think they were, they were signaling those things in. But, man, just think about how much you had to know, DJ. Like, you're the quarterback. How much you had to know when they're – signaling those plays in. I will say this, 
there I don't think there were as many formations. Like when you go back and you look at the classic 49ers, the 49ers typically stayed in split backs. Yeah. They, they, they lined up in split backs. They lined up in slot. Uh, maybe they put the third receiver in, but it was still split backs. They didn't have, oh, we're going three by one. We're going empty. We're doing all of these different things. That came later. They didn't have shotgun. They weren't using shotgun because Bill Walsh wasn't a proponent of shotgun because it messed it altered the timing of the passing game. But yeah, it's still a lot of volume. So um, I think there's a thing in football where they say you can opt for same but different, same formation, a bunch of different plays, or different but same, different formations, same play. And it's just a matter of what school you subscribe to. And it seemed like Bill Walsh subscribed to the theory, hey, we're going to be in the same stuff. We're just going to do a bunch of different things out of it to really challenge the defense. Yeah, it was a, that was a fun conversation. Any other, uh, any other notes you took out of there that, that interest you, Buck? Uh, I, I think when you talked about being at the forefront of the movement where they took care of the team, I do mm-hmm. remember minimal pads. And DJ, even when we talk about minimal pads, he talks about four pad days. Um, so four pads days would consist of going through stretch uh, the first five or six periods until you got to what we call run period uh, and inside the building, they would call it nine on seven. So mm-hmm. you do the heavy run period where you would have seven offensive, like, players, the offensive line, the running backs, or whatever you hand it off. You're going against the defense, which includes the D-line, the linebackers, and safeties, and you're kind of banging up in there. You're getting the timing of the running game down. That is probably the most physical part of practice. DJ, they would blow a whistle. At that point, everyone would go to the side. They would pop off their shoulder pads, and they would resume the rest of practice in your helmets and just your jerseys and your, your pants. And so when you think about really taking care of your team, that is the ultimate when it comes to taking care of your team and trusting that they're going to be ready for the physicality that takes place on Sunday. But the entire thing, you heard it. I want you fresh. I want you ready to go. I want you to play at a million miles an hour um, when you have an op- opportunity to play on Sunday. And the way that you do that is you make sure that your guys are ready and you preserve them and preserve their legs by not beating them up in practice. The, the fascinating thing is you look at that era, the Cowboys notorious under Jimmy Johnson for just banging and, and going very physical in practice. Now you hear the 49ers, the way you just described it. I mean, these are the two teams, you know, multiple Super Bowls for each of them, the two dominant teams of a decade doing it completely differently. I will say this, having played in both, both sides of the equation, when I was in Kansas City, whenever we played a team uh, like the 49ers or like the Packers, we felt like we could beat them up. And we, we felt like, our physicality would overwhelm them. I remember playing for Green Bay, like getting to Sunday and you hadn't hit anybody. The first couple collisions are like a car wreck. What? It, it takes mm-hmm. you a while to adjust. So I think you can take that approach if you have what I call an older, a mature team that's kind of been in some wars. I think otherwise you still kind of have to sprinkle in enough physicality to really get ready for the game. Yeah, well, I just – we, I wish we had more time to talk to him because it was such a, a fun conversation there with Joe Montana. But, man, it, again, we take a sheet full of notes and uh, be able to use that stuff as we go forward. Um, all right, Buck, uh, we have a, a new World Series champ as much as it pains me. I know you enjoyed it. I did not uh, as a Padre fan. Uh, you, I, you know, I think I think the thing the thing is, though, and I'm really surprised by you because, like, you're such, a caring, and, you're such a caring and kind and considerate guy. And I understand that you're a fan and you're a Friar Faithful I get whatever. One team. But I don't it. understand, like, like being a fan of the Padres doesn't mean you have to hate everybody oh, yeah, else. I, 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 don't I don't hate everybody. I don't, get, I, don't, 
Well, I, I don't I get that part of it. One last year, that was great. That's their I, I, don't, I don't get that part. Of it. It's almost like like me as a as a Carolina guy. Like I don't root against Duke when they're playing. I don't really care about them. But I I see you like you, you know why games, you, you, you subtweet. Yeah, you. Oh, I love it. It's fun. <laughs> the only time I get to troll is with the Padres and the Dodgers. You know why you don't? You know why you don't care about Duke? Because you live in California. If you live, <laughs> if you live back in wait, Carolina, wait, even then, and all even your then. friends, everybody that you see is Duke fans, and then they just oh, it's so obnoxious and so arrogant. As you know, Duke fans are. We agree on that. <laughs> and they would drive you crazy. There are no Duke fans out here. I'm surrounded by Dodger fans. Maybe that's that's all we work that's with that's is Dodger that's fans. That's it's a that's nightmare. That's yeah, because I, I noticed after God, what game was that? Game four? When you just put this smiley face? Oh yeah, when they when they little league the end of the game. Yeah. <laughs> which was Sticking so it all bad. over the place. Which was so bad. Like such they were so much better. Like if you just take the roster, their roster is so much better than Tampa's. They're the best team, and they probably have been the best team for a little while now. Um, but um you know, they they, uh, they got it done. And I give Dave Roberts – Dave Roberts, come on the show. We're going to air a little bit of the clip. We had him on in May uh, when we had a little bit of a break before the start of the season. And uh, he's a great dude. San Diego guy, of course. Mark mm-hmm. Pryor, their pitching coach, San Diego guy. Um, but, look, he's – so I'm happy for Dave. I can be happy for Doc Roberts, happy for David Singer, our buddy. Uh, but the majority of Dodger fans, no. And it's like – you got a $200 million payroll. It's not you guys are a little engine that could here, like this feel-good story. And then the other side of it is, oh, we haven't won since 1988. It's been so it's hard. It's so on long. Us. It's like, so we've long. We've never won anything. The Padres ever. Time. Like, you're not getting any sympathy from me. Give me a break. 88. Such a long time. You've won, eight, you've won the division eight years in a row. Like, like you, I mean, come on. No one, no one cares. What we talked about? You talked about last week. Titles or t-shirts? T-shirt, no, t-shirts no, and titles. No, no one cares about those, those division uh, t-shirts. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I say that with my mouth, but I'm, I might get a little wild card t-shirt for the Padres here. After this year. It's, been a while. it's been a while. I might, I'd rock it. I would rock it. I'm not going to lie, Buck. I would rock it this year. Uh <laughs> All right. Oh, by the way, before we get to the, to the Dave Roberts thing, can we – I know there was a big analytics discussion because they took Blake Snell out of that game when he was dealing and rolling and because the analytics say you don't let a pitcher face the lineup the third time through. So they trusted the, they trusted that. It didn't work out for him. To me, I actually thought um, the issue wasn't necessarily even taking him out, which was bad in and of itself, but the issue was who you brought in. You brought in a, a right-hander who – Mookie Betts has eaten up right-handed pitching, struggled against lefties. So that doesn't make any sense by the numbers. And the guy that you brought in giving up runs in six straight games. like So that's one of those things where I'm like, I don't know what computer you're using, but that doesn't seem to make any sense to me. The other thing I was going to point out is I think in the analytics model, you have to have a model. We talk about this in football all the time. Playoff football is a little different than regular season football. And a baseball model for 162 games where you beat people with depth – I don't in the postseason, you roll with your dudes, man. You put your best guys out there, you give them your at bats to your best players, and you keep your best pitchers to throw the most pitches they can when they're out there. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's the debate and the discussion that we have, even in the football world, DJ. We've seen this year, we haven't really touched on it, but um two-point plays, fourth down decisions, when to go and where to go. And so you'll have the numbers suggest like, oh, you got to go for it right now. You want to know, you want to know. But then there's the old school football mind that's like, hold on, man. Like, look, the first thing you have to do is make sure that I don't put myself in a position to lose the game. So yeah. how can I protect myself where I can minimize the odds that we're going to lose based off of this decision that we make? 
And I think a lot of times when we're doing the analytics driven decisions, sometimes that's not a consideration and it's easy to do, to do that. And I think the best coaches or the best people that are u- utilizing analytics or whatever, they're able to take the numbers while also sprinkle in their own expertise and try and make the best decision based on all of the information, not just completely either your gut or what the numbers say. You know what they needed? I was thinking about this. What they needed? They needed Gina Davis. Remember the movie? <laughs> yeah. You remember that movie, League of Their Own? She comes out there. Her sister's the pitcher, right? And she comes out there and, and, and the pitching coach goes, what do you think? And she goes, she's, she's, she's battling. She's battling. What do you really think? Yeah, she's done. She's got nothing left. Like, she's, like she could see it. She's she's a catcher. It's her own sister. She just called it like she saw it. Like they, they needed to go to the catcher and be like, "Is this guy? Is he still good? Are we good here? Yeah, he's great. We're fine." And I think sometimes, like I do believe, sometimes when I mean, your eyeballs, like the dominance that was being displayed, sometimes you just have to trust. Like you know, man, I'm. I know the numbers say this, but I'm. I'm gonna have to go with this. Like I, I feel this based off. My guy is hot. He's rolling. And whatever. And I understand, like, not wanting to see three times through, but he was dealing and it was almost like they they let him off the hook. Yeah, no. They needed Gina Davis behind the plate. If she's catching that game, she she tells them they got to keep him in. That's, <laughs> it. That's, it. That's it. It's that simple. Uh, all right, let's get to it. Let's get to this little snippet here. This is our conversation with Dave Doc Roberts in May, um, talking about the importance. Well, actually, I'll, I'll, I think we have the, the question here. I won't I won't tease it. Let's just let's roll it. One of the things that I've heard about you is because you guys have been really heavily analytic driven that you've had to really manage the relationship with the players to get them to have a complete buy in. Talk about the importance of trust and communication when you are trying to make decisions that are in the best interest of the team, but you're dealing with players who are used to playing every day. Well, that's yeah, that's that's a constant. uh, I wouldn't say struggle. It's a constant challenge. It's something that I got to keep front of mind. Um, you know, I think the thing is, is that I have to always remember what it's like to be a player. When you're a coach, you have to remember that. Um, and, and secondly, um, I very, all the time I let players know our goal is to win baseball games and, and winning is, uh, the most important thing. So, uh, when you have a lot of good players, you know, players want to take care of their families. They, they want to perform. They want the opportunity. They always feel that they're the best option, which I love. And you never want to change that. Um, but I do think that to play for a champion, there's got to be sacrifice. And, and I think that for us, that's something that we talk about. And just giving guys opportunities, um, you know, when they can, when I can and, and kind of make guys feel relevant and empowered. But it, it's tough because I think for me, as you guys might have heard, I try to touch every player every single day. And, you know, you see, I was on a uh, podcast with Pete Carroll and Steve Kerr uh, a couple weeks ago. And, you know, Pete, Car- Pete Carroll's a guy that's going up and down the sidelines, patting guys on the butt and, you know, just a little something. I think that that goes a long way when you're a leader of men um, or women. Um, and, and so just a little bit that that head coach or that manager can let them know, hey, I'm thinking about you. I still believe in you. I still need you. And that little bit keeps guys going. But I think for me, it's the consistency of having those conversations. All right, Buck, you get a chance to, to listen back to that conversation. Seems like a million years ago, right? Uh, chatting with uh, with Dave Roberts. But I, I thought it was important what he had to say there. And I think it showed out just uh, the leadership that he had and being able to interact with everybody. Yeah, no, he, he, he has been great. And I think um, the thing about Dave is not only the managing of the interpersonal relationships with the team and making sure that everybody feels like they're important, but also the resiliency that he had to get his team to display 
they've, I mean, they've come up short so many times they've been there and there's no fast forwarding to get to the next step, which is to win the title. And so look, great perspective. And, and we talked about this before we came on. Uh, once you get the first one down and the way in which they were able to do it, potentially it can unlock a run that we've seen yep. the Yankees have a run that we saw the Atlanta Braves have because you kind of know um, in football, we saw the Patriots have it because once you acquire that knowledge of what it takes to win it, well, now the, the fun can begin if everybody is able to kind of keep their egos in check and everyone doesn't uh, run amok trying to think that they're chiefly responsible for the success. If you can keep the team together and keep the mindset right, there's no reason why they can't continue to go back and always be in the mix and in the conversation each and every year. This is what scares me is that I'm thinking of the Chicago Bulls and I'm thinking of acquiring so much postseason experience with with failure. Right. Or, you know, they they couldn't Mm -hmm. get past the Pistons, but they acquired all that experience when they were very young. Think about the Dallas Cowboys. They had a young, young team. Mm -hmm. And then once they got a taste of it, once they figured out they could do it. Now you've got the talent and the confidence and the experience all coming together. And the Dodgers team is still the core of the team is really young. Kershaw's a little bit older. Kenley Jansen's about done, but they but they have a core that is very young. They have a lot of postseason experience. The struggles to try and get through it, couldn't get through it. They break through. I'm with you. As much as it pains me to say, I would not be surprised if they ripped off, you know, three or four here in the next see, but, you know, six or seven years. See, but the thing is, and also like uh I will say this because you're a Padres fan. I think the rivalry with the Padres. I think that makes everyone have to perk up. Like, there's not a level of complacency that can happen in the NL West because the Padres are coming. And so, mm-hmm. I think that would be an interesting battle uh, to watch as they go forth, as the Padres are, are trying to close ground and as the Dodgers are trying to stave off the the challenger. I think that can make for some very very interesting baseball to watch. Yeah, and by the way, uh, to my fellow Padre fans out there, maybe three are listening to this right now, but the uh, don't be the person that's like, we, we lost to the team that won the whole thing. Like, there's no, no pride no, in that. There's no, that's no, not, that, you don't get anything for that. That's not, that doesn't matter. I hate uh, that mentality, man. I, don't I you hate that? Man. Well, that you means know, like, that we could have been, I'm like, no, you lost to him. No, I mean, I, gosh, I, I mean, it sucks. Yet our starting pitchers were hurt. I get that, but don't, don't give me the, uh, yeah, oh, you yeah. know, they, we lost to them. So that makes, we're the second best team. Like, no, no you lost. Yeah. Um. All right. Anything, anything else you want to add before we jump out of here, Buck? No, man, that was good, man. You talk about, having a conversation with the ultimate winner and then reflecting back on a conversation with a guy who just won the world series. I think it was a fantastic podcast. We continue to want to learn and know more about building the right stuff, how to build championship teams and implement the right culture. I don't know if you can get two better guys than the ones that we had on the show today. No, that was great. I, by the way, I'll issue a challenge out there to somebody. Uh, if you, you, anybody can have a website, right? So you can have a little blog or what have you. Somebody, we have some of this on our own, but I would love it if somebody is interested in the culture stuff like we are. If you went back through all of our conversations we've had with coaches um, and and great players like like Hall of Famers, where we've got some of these, create a little blog and then uh, keep keep a little tab there of all the of all the notes you've been able to compile. We we compile all these notes on our on our end. We put them in our own computers. But if somebody wants to be able to compile that, we could share it with the rest of uh, with the rest of our audience because I know you guys uh, dig that stuff as well. So if somebody wants to go for that, go for it. A little homework project for you. Um, anyways, that that was a fun episode. I want to thank David Singer for booking that. Uh, thank uh, Mark and Nabil for the work they do for us. And uh, we're out of here. We'll catch you next time right here on Move the Sticks presented by Zaxby's.
Introducing the first ever Grand Highlander, a mid-sized SUV with the ideal combination of space, performance, style, and advanced tech. The roomy Grand Highlander boasts three spacious rows with available seating for up to eight. It's available 362 horsepower. Hybrid Max powertrain on limited and platinum trims delivers the power, acceleration, and efficiency so your family can take on any adventure. There's even a standard digital key, a panoramic view mirror, and a 12.3-inch multimedia touchscreen so you always arrive on time. Live life grander in the first-ever Toyota Grand Highlander. Learn more at toyota.com slash Grand Highlander. Hi, I'm Gabby Reese. Join me and my husband, big wave surfer Laird Hamilton, on our journey with Laird Superfood. From our kitchen to yours, we've crafted delicious plant-based creamers, coffee, greens, and so much more using high-quality functional ingredients. Visit LairdSuperfood.com and use the code GABBY2024 for 20% off your first order. If you're ready for an epic family vacation, there's no better place than sunny Orlando. Exciting thrills, never-ending food festivals, fresh new dining experiences, outdoor adventures, and Florida's natural springs, and so much more. Orlando has it all. And Visit Orlando's vacation planners can help you plan the perfect trip. In Orlando, anything is possible, if you can imagine it. And that's what makes Orlando unbelievably real. Plan your escape today and save at visitorlando.com. Tired of restless nights? At Lisa, we know good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. From memory foam mattresses to hybrids that keep you cool all night long, Lisa's mattresses offer exceptional comfort and support with free delivery and 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 